You're listening to teaching from Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. How many of you are familiar with the concept of lawnmower parenting? Anybody? Some of y'all are. uh, My recent youth ministry grads familiar with this concept. Lawnmower parenting are are basically the idea is that a parent goes and clears the way in front of their students, their child. Instead of parenting them for challenges, to prepare them, they mow out any obstacles um, so the kids won't experience failure and disappointment. Uh, Sometimes this is called like snowplow parenting. Um, sometimes it's called less flattering things than even that. But as a parent, one of the things I know just kind of intuitively is that I don't want my kids to suffer. And I don't want them to feel pain. And so sometimes the easy thing for me to do is to just go and tear down anything that might get in their way and might cause them any sort of heartache. But the reality is, when, when we, as parents, when we behave like this, when we go through this lawnmower parenting, this bulldozer-type parenting, and we knock down all of these obstacles that are in front of our kids, what we're actually doing is we're instilling in them a fear of failure. And a lot of times it comes from actually our fear of failure, because unfortunately for many of us as parents, we find our identity and view our success through the lens of how our kids live. And so what we're doing is we're afraid to fail as parents. And so we're trying to just set them up to succeed. So we knock down any obstacle in their way because of this fear of failure. We're in this series, All In, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. And I think one of the most difficult things to do as a human being is to face uncertainty. And this fear of failure can be strong, it can be paralyzing, it can be debilitating, it can really overwhelm us. Like Monica said earlier in the service, over here on our giant, many of us have written that we struggle with a fear of failure. If you're going to ask me what my deepest seated fear is, it's probably the fear of failure. And today we're going to talk maybe just a little bit about how we as believers, as followers of God, as Christians, should approach an uncertain future and how we can handle the fear of failure. We're going to start off in Exodus chapter 3 this morning. Exodus chapter 3, and Exodus chapter 3 is a fairly well-known story about the Moses and the burning bush. So if you don't know, or, or maybe you just need a little refresher, Moses, as a child was raised, even though he wasn't Egyptian, was raised in Egyptian palaces by one of Pharaoh's daughters. And as he grows up, he's educated and lives there in the home and has all of uh, the access to things that someone who would be in that environment would have. But as he grows up, he has some encounters that kind of shape his life. And in one of these encounters, he sees an Egyptian beating one of his own people, and he intervenes and he murders this Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And he finds out that word has gotten out about what he has done. And so he's living as an exile. He's on the run because he was a murderer. And he's working as a shepherd. And one day, while he's out tending to sheep, 
he notices something, something that was odd, something that stood out to him. There was a bush that was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. And then we have this sort of interesting thing where God calls out to Moses from the bush. This is what God says in Exodus 3, 5 through 6. Do not come near. Take off your sandals of your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then this is what God says to Moses in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering. And after God just kind of declares who he is to Moses, this is what he says. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I don't know if you've been ever, given, ever been given a big job. Maybe in work they call you in for a project that's a little bit out of your pay grade. Uh, maybe, maybe for you it's like a family situation, like you're, you're the cool aunt and all of a sudden you get dropped off with a new baby because there's an emergency and you're like, ah. We probably all had this experience where we walk into a situation and we're just completely overwhelmed by the responsibility. I want you to imagine for a moment the amount of anxiety that Moses would have felt God appears to him miraculously in, in this bush that's on fire but not consumed. He says, boldly, I, I'm the God of your fathers. And he's like, I've got a job for you. You know that place that you're on the run from? You're going back. And you're not just going back and you're like getting your position reinstated. And, and, no, you're going back to tell those people that they're letting my people go. The amount of, of anxiety that would have overcome me in that situation. Would have been crippling. And so Moses does what I believe is a natural response here. He gives excuses. Anyone here good at giving excuses? Yeah. Moses, Moses becomes the king of excuses. Here's Moses' first excuse in verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? What, what he's really asking here is, or what he's really saying here is, I'm not good enough. Who am I to, to do this task, this overwhelming thing that you've called me to do? There's no way that I am capable. I am not good enough. So this is how God responds to his first excuse. God says this in verse 12. I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, I just want to pause for a second here. Because in my mind, as someone who's skeptical and probably a little anxious in this moment, this is not a helpful response. <laughs> Moses says, I'm not good enough for this. And God says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you've done it, you'll know. <laughs> this will be your sign. After you've done the thing that you say you can't do, you'll know that I was right. Moses' second excuse. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they will ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? I'm going to translate this for you. Moses is saying, God, I don't know enough 
I don't have the right information. I don't know what I need to have here. So God responds to Moses' second excuse. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said to them, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I will be remembered through all the generations. God's response is essentially like, you don't have what you need to know, that's fine. I will give you what you need. God declares to him, not just his generic name, not just his any day run-of-the-mill name, but he very specifically tells him, my name is Yahweh. This, this name is I Am. He's talking about him being a state of being that he will continue on. He's reminding Moses and the people of Israel that God is not a God who abandoned them or was a God in the past and maybe a God in the future, but that God is eternal, that God is ongoing, that God is never ending. In this moment, he's giving Moses not just the information he needs, but hopefully the confidence he needs to move forward. Hey, you're not good enough. That's fine. You don't know enough. I'm here with you. I'm going to give you what you need. And don't worry because I am. I'm enough. I'm here. I've always been. I always will be. Moses goes on with a third excuse. This sounds a lot like me at this point. Okay, you've answered my second question. Here's my third one. Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, Behold, they won't believe me or listen to my voice. They'll say, the Lord did not appear to you. Translation, Moses is saying, I'm not credible enough. I'm not credible enough. Now, granted, if someone showed up today and said, hey, God spoke to me and told me that we're going to do something that's completely unbelievable to you, this would probably be our response as well, right? So Moses is not completely out of line here, but he raises the question. He gives the excuse, God, no one's going to listen to me. I'm not credible enough. And this is where God like, really starts to extend his response. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, he basically gives Moses three signs. And these would have been miraculous outpourings, things that would have wowed the people of Egypt, but also the people of Israel in the way they do things. He gives them the first one is that a snake, his staff would become a snake. So basically, Moses would have the ability to take his staff that's in his hand and turn it into a snake and then pick it back up. The second one is this. He'd be able to put his hand into his cloak and it would become leprous. And then he'd be able to put it back in a second time and it'd be restored. So he's showing that he has power over nature, has power over illness. And then he says, if they still won't listen to you, go and grab some water from the Nile and pour it onto the ground. And when you do that, it will become blood. See, at every step of the way, Moses makes an excuse. And at every step of the way, God steps in and takes away Moses' excuses. Hey, you don't think that people believe you? I will give you signs. Now, most of us would not be super convinced if someone did this, right? We grew up in the days of like David Blaine and you know, David Copperfield and probably a bunch of other Davids who do magic tricks. And we're skeptical. We're naturally skeptical when we see these kind of things. But these would have been convincing evidence that the people of, of Egypt and the people of Israel would have listened to and responded to that would have shown that Moses had credibility. So at every step of the way, God is removing Moses' excuses. So he comes up with a fourth excuse. Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. 
Translation, I'm not talented enough. As we read through Moses' excuse, we begin to ask ourselves, what is Moses really afraid of? Like, what is Moses really anxious about? What is he really paralyzed about here? And I believe that Moses has a fear of failure. There was a website I was reading that has to do with um, uh, adolescents dealing with anxiety, and they were talking about different thinking traps that people, uh, when they get stuck in anxious moments, get, get trucked into. And they outlined these, and I thought these were really powerful. They talked about the thinking trap of having all-or-nothing thinking. This is only being able to think that results will be either amazing or disastrous. They talked about catastrophizing, only being able to imagine the worst possible outcomes of a situation. They talked about fortune-telling, believing that you know without a shadow of a doubt the outcomes of future events. They talked about the thinking trap of overgeneralization, where we make these broad, sweeping judgments about ourselves and others based on our past experiences. They talked about this mind-reading thinking trap that we come up with, where we assume that we know what others are thinking in every situation. They talked about having a negative brain filter, that we can only see the bad in situations. And if you look back over the way Moses responded, each one of the excuses that he made, I think that Moses was falling into some of these thinking traps. He's, he's only looking at the bad. He's only looking at the worst. He's assuming that he knows how people are going to respond. He knows that he can predict the future here. He knows he's got this all or nothing mindset. And he's fallen into all of these negative thinking traps that we tend to fall into. And God responds to this last excuse in this way starting in verse 11 of chapter 4. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth and will teach you what to speak. Moses said to him, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. The excuses are gone. Verse 14, after some patience, the Lord's anger was kindled against Moses. And he said this, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth and, and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you and shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take your staff, which is also, so you will do the signs. When I read this story of Moses' encounter with God, I begin to wrestle with the idea of how do we face failure? How do we approach the fear of failure? Or maybe another way of thinking of this is how can we break from the anxiety of uncertainty? When we look out into the future and we don't know what the future holds, how can we move forward past the anxiety that tends to trap us? A couple of things for us to remember. First, remember this. God's got this. God's got this. In verse 11 of chapter 4, he says to Moses, Look, you're worried about your mouth working, but I made your mouth. You're worried about these things, but I've got this under control. I, I kind of think God is saying, look, you don't think I know who I called? 
You don't think I know your limitations, your strengths and weaknesses? I designed you, Moses. And we are just overcome by this fear of the future and this fear of failure. We need to remember that God's got this. The second thing is we're not alone. Now, after God was frustrated with Moses, he he says to him, your brother's coming along. It's almost as if he's reminding him, I'm not sending you alone. And I think for us, we get stuck in this idea that the failures that we're facing, the fear of the future, the uncertain future ahead of us, that we have to pave our own way. That we have to do this all on our own. And what he reminds Moses in this moment is, no, 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 you are not alone. You are never alone. Your brother is coming with you. As Christians, it's important for us to remember that we are the body of Christ. That we are a family of God. And what that means is that when one of us is facing failure, when one of us is pushing through our doubts and struggles, when one of us is facing an uncertain future, that we're not doing this alone because the church is family. But here's the other thing I think we need to remember. It's okay to fail. It's okay to fail. You can tell people you have my permission. It's okay to fail. When my kids were young, one of the things I loved to do was watch the show Mythbusters with them. I don't know if we have any Mythbusters fans in the house. I love the way they approach problems on the show Mythbusters. And one of the things that was like a motto of the show is failure is always an option. Failure is always an option because they realize that when they're tackling difficult problems, when they're facing unsurmountable odds, when they're trying to to really do something difficult, failure is always an option. See, failure is an important part of life. Failure is something that is an essential experience for us as humans. It's something that we have to go through and grow through and learn through. It's a part of life. When I was a kid, my dad swore by three products. Mag lights, I don't know, he always thought they worked better than others. Maybe they do. Duct tape, we had duct tape, and you could fix anything with duct tape. And then the other product, and this is one that I never thought I would use, but I keep a can of it with me all the time, WD-40. Anybody? Now, the name WD-40 is really interesting because it actually means water displacement 40th formula. The lab who created this, this was their 40th attempt at developing this product. If you've ever used WD-40, you know it's like a miraculous thing, right? There were 39 non-miraculous attempts before it. (laughs) And when we fail, and we allow the failure to define us, we're not allowing it to teach us. And I believe that failure can be a powerful teacher, And this is just a little side note to parents. This is why it's important that you let your kids fail and that you equip them to move forward through their failures. It's also important to remember that failure is not the end of the story. Your story doesn't end the moment you fail. Failure is not the end of the story. One of the most amazing drummers in the world, his name's Questlove, he wrote a book on creativity. And this is what he said in his chapter on failure. Failure is not fatal. 
For starters, it can be a motivator. Smooth sailing isn't always the best way to convince yourself that you need to put your nose to the grindstone. Struggle and frustration and fear can be great tools for learning to focus and recharge yourself. See, failure is not the end of the story. I stand before you this morning as someone who has failed in every way imaginable. I failed as a friend, as a husband, as a father, as a neighbor, as a citizen, as a youth minister, as a Christian. I failed as being a human. Like, I, failure is part of the human story. And if we read through the Bible, it's not hard to find stories of failure in the Bible. The Bible is filled with flawed heroes with glorious failure stories. See, when we look at Moses, like, it's easy for us to go, Moses was just making excuses. But the reality is, all of Moses' excuses were based on real-life experiences. Moses said to God, I'm not good enough. But the reality is, Moses was raised around princes, and he was always an outsider. And he probably, his entire life, was told he wasn't good enough. Moses told God, I don't know enough. But the reality is, he was probably highly educated in Egypt, but lacked the theological education he knew he was going to need to talk to the people about God. He said, I'm not credible enough, but the reality was he was a murderer. He was on the run because he lacked credibility. And he said, I'm not talented enough, and we can all relate to this. See, each one of Moses' excuses were built from real-life failures and shortcomings. Each one of Moses' excuses had a small amount of truth to them. And, And I don't know about you, but when I think about my personal fear of failure, I can relate to Moses. When I, when I look out at the things that God's called me to and the things that I want to accomplish in life and the things that I see in my uncertain future, it can be overwhelming. And I can, just like Moses, fall into these thinking traps because there's some truth there. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In this chapter, he's been talking about his own weakness. And he's been talking about specifically a struggle that he has. He calls it his thorn in the flesh. And we don't know exactly what this was, whether Paul had some sort of physical ailment or if he had some sort of sin struggle or or some sort of limitation. But whatever it was, he called it a thorn in the flesh. And he says there, I begged God three times to take it away. And this is how God responded to him. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. And I'm content with all these failures in life. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. See, the truth that Paul realized here is that the failures that we've experienced in life, the weakness, the brokenness, the struggles, the persecutions, the hardships, the insults, the calamities, all these things that he had experienced in life, They did not define him because they were not the end of his story. In fact, he understood very clearly that God was able to take these very brokenness, these very flaws, these very failures, and to be glorified through them. 
He says there, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Not because Paul was strong, but because Christ was strong. and He was relying on the power of Christ. See, the Christian life is a life of hope. It's a life of courage in the face of uncertain times. I don't know what tomorrow holds for you. I don't know what tomorrow holds for me. My guess is there's a lot of failure in our futures. But I know and I believe and I trust that when I'm weak, I'm strong. Because in those moments of weakness, God is present with me. And God is able to do things with the brokenness of my life and be glorified in those moments in ways that I can't even imagine because we are able to live with hope and courage in the face of uncertainty because when we put our trust in God, the failures of our past don't define us, the failures of our future don't prevent us. But we're able to move forward. Let's pray.